This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod or email us at TalkingSexPodcast at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers. Yo. There's certain things that I can talk to you about that I can't really with my dad. I don't think we should talk about this. Hi, this is Jen with Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen, and I'm here with Lynn today. Good morning. I'm looking forward to the topic. Yeah, we've got a good one today. And today we're going to be doing another Spotlight on Sex, and it's sort of a follow-up companion to what we talked about last time. So for those who have not listened to our previous Spotlight, it was talking about the Taylor Swift court case and the importance of speaking up for survivors of sexual assault and sexual abuse. And so today we wanted to talk about the other side of things, which is some of the reasons behind why victims of sexual abuse often stay silent and for so long. And what happened was we found this really excellent article. It's called The Culture of Silencing Child Victims of Sexual Abuse, Implications for Child Witnesses in Court. And so we're going to talk about some of the um, some of the issues that, or the concerns that were addressed and brought up in this article. We're going to talk about some of our own experiences with our own clients and things like that. And also I want to give credit to the authors of the article. So it, um, they are Sarah Caprioli and David Crenshaw. From Poughkeepsie, New York. Yes. I found this article amazingly interesting, partly because our listeners probably don't know this, but uh, I've done a lot of forensic work over about a 35-year period, and I've worked a lot with children, and uh, the experience of seeing children on the witness stand, assisting them as their therapist, or working with them in a forensic capacity has, has been very illuminating. The article points out that children were able to speak out a little bit more freely in terms of the legal system before um, the Crawford Act went before the Supreme Court. And that required children, really, to be uh, confront their accusers. It's really for the, the benefit of the accusers. And children were no longer allowed to share their story of abuse in judges' chambers in a private manner. So after that happened... The last, say, 10 years, we've had a lot more very young kids on the witness stand, and they've been interviewed in a very adult and confrontational fashion. So it's really changed the landscape of the courtroom for children. Yeah, I mean, I think that's such a huge component is is the court aspect, and I think it's important to talk about that and having the background we can discuss that. I think before we get to that, though, let's let's talk about, you know, before even getting to court, it's such a process for people. And I think for people who have not been victims of sexual assault or sexual abuse, they don't understand necessarily the whole process that is involved and in, in how people get to that place. And so I think there's a lot of shame, there's a lot of secrecy, there's a lot of stigma around just the experience and being abused. And then 
asking somebody, I think frequently a question that people are asked mm -hmm. when they disclose at a much later date is, you know, why didn't you come forward sooner? And so I think as with our professional roles, we can really highlight that and be able to share with people some of these reasons. Well, this article talks about how only 10% of uh, all the children who are abused come forward in childhood. And some of the things you're talking about, particularly the shame, yeah. any child who's been abused feels shame around the process. And it's shaming to even think about disclosing it because then you have to share it with other people. You expose them to the shame. Many children want to protect their parents from being shamed by it, so they may get abused at school, and they'll hide it from parents for years because they really don't. They're trying to protect their parents from what they've been through. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just to quickly define <clears throat> shame, the difference between guilt and shame as it's defined in, in the literature is really that guilt is feeling guilty about a specific thing, whereas shame is really all-encompassing. It's seeing yourself, your entire self, in a very negative light and, and as unworthy and undeserving of love and attention and affection. And in one of the cases that I worked on this month, a little boy had been uh, sexually uh, abused by another little boy, actually, in kindergarten, and he had uh, tried to protect his parents and other other kids by not talking about the process and fortunately had a good relationship and called little Peter with his mother and he could share. His mother had said, you can always share everything with me. And so he eventually opened up with her. But um, he's still working on the feelings of shame that he had and he disclosed really within a few months of the abuse. Yeah, which is incredible. I mean, I think that's such a key component too is... I think kids are taught, you know, you need to talk about this, you need to say this to somebody, but it really does matter who you say it to, because some of the biggest reasons that I've heard from my clients about why they didn't come forward sooner, um, often they're in their 20s or even their 30s at this point in time. They talk about the fear of not being believed by their parents or by teachers or by their therapist even, if they have one. And so I think that is one of the biggest reasons, because there is such a blowback for people. If you aren't believed, you're labeled a liar, you feel personally ashamed and responsible a lot of the time. We can talk more about that. That's a part of the process, yeah, too. In Jennifer, a lot of the older literature portrayed children who come forward with abuse stories as liars and right. question their credibility. Now we know that probably 95% of children who disclose sexual allegations, they're not false. Right. So you really know that there's a very high rate of honest disclosure when it happens. So you have to pay attention to it. Although I do have to bring up their one caveat, which is that there are right. higher rates when it comes to custody decisions yes. and divorce. Yes, that's very important to know that because... You know, that's where a parent might, uh, you know, ask repeatedly their child whether or not they've experienced sexual activity with the other parent. Mm -hmm. And um, that is very damaging. And I think just to be aware of that as our listeners. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there's the other thing that, that comes along with not being believed is there is a huge culture of victim blaming. And that's where, you know, a lot of people are asked, you know, what what did you wear? What did you do? And, and sort of 
maybe not outright saying like you brought this on yourself, but certainly that is an underlying message that a lot of these victims get. And to go back to the story of little Peter, little Peter was uh, depositioned in a court setting and um, he was asked repeatedly about these things and uh, as if he had provoked the abuse and brought it on and it was you know he ended up just holding on to one line of his little story but he felt so attacked and then he started to fall asleep at the table yeah because he really couldn't handle you know the argumentative stance that the other attorneys were adopting toward him well it's a self-protective thing yeah, and for children, it's very difficult to be in that situation. And I think even for maybe not someone who's as young as Peter, but for some of the older children, it's still very hard to be in that situation. And I think mm. there is a mentality that if they're shut down, maybe they're lying, or if they're overly hyped up, you know, because they're hyper vigilant and, mm. and some of the trauma you know, then they're also lying. And so there's so much around it that is, especially, you know, from the other side, trying to portray this person as lying. And I think having that pressure is incredibly hard to deal with outside of a courtroom, let alone in a courtroom setting. And this article talks about how children, when they're confronted with questions by adults, will try to conform their response to what they think the adult wants. Well, actually, the yeah. article doesn't say that. That's, yeah. that's more what I was thinking. And But what they do say is about, you know, there is this belief in the court system that having a more confrontational approach is going to be the way to get to the truth. And what I was saying as we were commenting is, you know, I think anybody who works with kids would know that when kids are under duress and they think they're going to be in trouble in some way, they'll say what they think you want to hear. Yeah. Well, that's been my experience with watching kids and working with them on the stand for all of these years that they conform their responses, and it's subtle, you know, and uh, and when they're asked repeatedly the same question, they'll often change their response, assuming that the adult Doesn't wants a like different it. one. Exactly. Exactly, and that's what happens in court. They're asked repeatedly, mm-hmm. and then they say, oh, no, it didn't happen by the fifth time, and then it said, well, look at their credibility. They don't, they're not credible and not recognizing this process with children. Well, I think that's part of it, too. What I thought was so interesting about this article is it really highlights the fact that the process in court very much mirrors the process that happens before they even get to court. So in a way, it's sort of a secondary wounding or a secondary traumatic experience to have to relive their story, to be intensely questioned in this way, and to not be allowed to self-soothe in the ways that kids know how to do. And I guess listening to this, any parent is going to think they don't want their child in court, especially around this kind of situation. I mean, the authors bring out the fact they have a program where they have therapy dogs that go to court with kids. I think you could still, as a parent, question whether or not your child's testimony is needed in one of these cases and, mm-hmm. and advocate for having the child be in a separate room and 
talk to the judge, all the things that were done before the Crawford Supreme Court decision. I think even bringing up an article like this, it's wonderful that they're doing research like this because you can show, look, these things do make a difference. They do impact it. And if the point of court obviously is justice and trying to figure out the truth, then you would want to do all the things that lead in that direction. And I think having research articles like this helps to show that this is the case, that when you let the child self-soothe, they are more able to tell their story and you get the truth, and that these confrontational, aggressive um, means are not effective. The most important thing when you're interviewing a child is to keep it open-ended questions, yeah, not specifics, which attorneys will frequently use in court, and uh, to sometimes encourage drawing or even acting out you mm-hmm. know, what happened. And children can draw a picture, and that starts their process of really beginning disclosure. Well, I think it's a safety thing, too. When when kids feel more secure, they're more able to talk about these things that are very distressing and disturbing to them. And I think that it's a huge part of, of the whole process is, as you said with little Peter, he was able to feel secure enough with his mom that he brought up the fact that this was going on. And as you said, it even with that secure bond, it took him a couple months. One of the hard things about the, the court experience for him, he held on to one little phrase describing the abuse, how he wasn't kept safe. Yeah. And then they, they said, well, those are big words for a little kid to use. And they discounted his credibility based on that, saying, well, your parents must have, have told you this. And this gets to how many parents actually would insert in their child's mind the idea that they are sexually abused. And that's something that in decades of experience, you know, I've only seen around custody cases. Really. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So I think to be aware of that as parents, you may not want to hear these things when your child discloses. But I think it's it's well, you're well aware to know this sort of situation. Well, I think it too, it brings up the idea of just talking about child sexual abuse is so uncomfortable for so many people that I think they come up with reasons to rationalize why this could not have happened. Because how could it possibly have happened instead of really listening? And while it may not be intentionally wounding the the victim here it does hurt them because now they have to fight not ag- not only against their own internal shame about you know did they cause this what what did they contribute to this but also they have to fight against the fact that these people don't believe them and right. it makes it, when somebody feels ashamed it makes you question whether something or not actually happened to you and it is a major impact on your sexuality because oh, yeah thinking about little Peter having a heavy dose of condemnation for his first sexual acts, which were really unwanted. Right. And then to have people, you know, shame and condemn him in a public setting. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I raised the question of wouldn't his sexuality be dramatically affected by this, or at least affected. Yeah. And they discounted that, you know, and that, again, you get to the struggles around how people fail to see the impact of silencing and shaming and disclosing really on a child's sexuality. Well, it so deeply affects your sexuality and your sexual identity. And and that actually brings up for me one of the 
in working with both boys and girls who've been sexually abused, the biggest, one of the biggest fears they talk about is that if they speak out and that they'll be blamed. We talked about the victim blaming and very specifically, a lot of it has to do with their social social status in a way. So a lot of the boys that I talk to worry that they'll now be seen as weak, effeminate, homosexual. And the girls talk about, well, they're going to be blamed and they're going to be called sluts. They're going to mm-hmm. be slut shamed. And I think it's hard because in many ways that can and does happen. And so it's about how do you encourage victims to speak out more you have to create an environment where these things are not happening where those are not going to be the repercussions and you and I I think had talked Mm -hmm. about how we really have to redefine people coming out and speaking out early about their abuse as being a courageous and heroic act and I think you know for me in thinking about it 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 really is such a courageous act because it it just requires so so much of a person to even be able to do something like that well some of the recommendations we've made in court about the kids we work with have been that they be acknowledged as heroes and heroines for speaking yeah. out because it takes just an unbelievable amount of courage and support Mm -hmm. from family and parents to speak out. And sometimes these cases are abuse within a family. So to have family members that uh, line up behind the child and support them is really important. In a a recent family of a Middle Eastern background, her uncle abused a a 14-year-old girl, and uh, the family was split, but the fam half of the family that supported the girl really did an amazing job of naming her a heroine, not slut-shaming her, as you talk about, Jennifer. Yeah. And it really gave her a strong base of support from her culture. And it was a culture that really had to move, you know, jump a step or two to make this transition yeah. to support her, but they did it, and they deserve support, too. They deserve Absolutely. a Hero and Heroine Award for that. Yeah. yeah, well, being able to shift your perspective, I think some of what's so hard about it is being able to accept that something that horrific could happen to somebody you love. And as we know, research shows that most abuse happens by somebody the victim knows. And so I think that is another component that maybe is not discussed as often is that it, it brings up those ties, you know, because if you if you do bring something up, it can divide a family or it can divide you from your peers at school. And I think that consequence is, is frequently weighed by the victims in, okay, you know, do I speak up about this or do I hold this to myself? And parents educating children about what to watch out for, safe touch and, mm-hmm. you know, how your privates are your own kind of thing. I think have to keep in mind that it's often, you know, they have to tell the child it could be somebody you know. So it could be a teacher or a babysitter or somebody like that and I, or neighbor. And just mm-hmm. to say those things I think is helpful. You know, and again, it uh, you'd think, oh, I'm going to brighten my child. But as you said, most of this abuse is in that context. It's not the car driving up and kidnapping the child. It's a different situation. And I think also a lot of it is the work of a parent. So you have to be able to deliver this information in just a very, like, facts of life kind of way, you know. And I think that's a hard, that's a hard place to get to if you're not used to having these conversations. So it is 
you know, listening to our podcast, listening to other sources and figuring out how do I stay calm and talking about this thing? Because then kids just accept it as, oh, I guess that's another life fact that mom or dad is teaching. The most child disclosures I've seen occur in the evening when the parent is putting the child to bed and you ask about the day and uh, did anybody, you know, hurt you? You might ask her how to go. If the child seems upset, I think you ask those other questions and you ask them in an open-ended manner so the child feels free, really, to say whether or not it happened. And um, I've been amazed at the courage of parents to follow through with some of these things, so what they heard was not what they wanted to hear at all. No, not at all. And I think bringing up that it affects, you know, parents and caregivers and grandparents, it, it really, I don't think people who are not as closely involved as us don't see is how many people are deeply affected by somebody coming out about this. Yeah. And then you may have to deal with the family member mm-hmm. who's a, an abuser who will then react and, mm-hmm. you know, turn on the well, they child get disclosing. Yes, that's, that I would say, it's not in this article, no. but it's a, uniformly I've seen uh, individuals accused of abuse and even by multiple people just unbelievably aggressive and uh, um, almost never openly disclosing in return. They'll retaliate. Yes, absolutely. And that that's important to know, but it's not a reason to stay stay silent. Right. I mean, I think it's, it's more about, it's important to address that these are different factors that people are considering because I think then you can understand how heroic it is for somebody to speak out because it takes so much courage. And, you know, I wrote down, so Brene Brown, who is a researcher who is well known for talking about shame and more recently about vulnerability. She defines vulnerability as courage and she says the three components of that are a willingness to engage in risk, a willingness to deal with and engage with uncertainty, and a willingness to engage with emotional exposure. And so if you look at a situation like speaking up about being a victim of sexual assault or sexual abuse, all those three components apply. Yeah, they really do. And the children we've been talking about, both the teenage girl of Middle Eastern background and Peter, they both had a lot of courage to come forward and they were willing to take a risk. They trusted their parents. Mm-hmm. You know, they had some emotional intelligence at even the young kindergartner's yeah. age to be able to do this and say this. And I think that plays into also being able to understand why is it that so many people often are in their 20s or 30s before they dec- disclose, mm-hmm. particularly if it's within the family, as I've noticed particularly when it's an abuse that's happening within a family, it takes that long because of your ties to the person and because you don't want to break up the family, you're worried about that, you're worried about, you know, if it's the mother or if it's the father, you're worried about the other parent that's involved. And I think that it then takes so long too because the idea that your parent has sort of broken the boundaries of what that relationship should be is very hard for people. And also, I would say one other thing. I know I'm all over the place No, no, I think what you're saying is very important, Jennifer. One of the other things I've seen is a lot of times there is a situation where a parent, I've, I've heard more 
cases where it's a father. So I'm just going to say father, uncle, grandfather, something like that, where they get very drunk. And when they're drunk, they're very abusive. But when they're not drunk, they're very warm and loving. And I think that combination in particular, I've found, makes it much harder for my clients to talk about their abuse. Really, the mixed reactions and feelings they have toward the person who's involved in this activity. Yeah. You know, we should spend a whole podcast someday talking about abuse patterns, yeah. uh, sexual abuse patterns, because there are really many, many different patterns. And I think you've talked about how most of the abusers are male, mm-hmm. and but they're, we're seeing a fair number oh, yeah. of uh, teenage boys, you know, early teen boys, uh, being abused by females in the Bay Area at this point, and I think that's an unrecognized group. That's what I said. That's really out there, and we don't know the amount of, you know, the rates really yet. Well, I think it's also in how we define abuse. For a very long time, abuse was seen as something that is usually a male perpetrator, and so I think it was very hard for and I think we've talked about this in other podcasts with, where we talked about the abuse of boys and men, but it's very hard for boys and men to even sometimes understand if they have been abused or not because of the conflicting messages in society, because of how we define this type of abuse. And I think that that plays a big role in it too. I want to build on that or maybe take it in a different direction, but one of the things that I see too about why people don't report sexual assault is because some people don't know whether or not they've been sexually assaulted. You're nodding your head. Maybe you can speak more to that. Well, to go back to little Peter, he was actually kind of, he disclosed what happened, but he didn't know that this was abuse. This just made him unhappy. Yeah. And he and his mother had enough of an emotional connection that he knew he could tell her, and share something that made him so unhappy. But he did not know at the age of five or six that this was abuse. So I think that's important to be aware of. A lot of kids don't know. That delays disclosure as they learn what abuse really is. (laughs) Sorry about that. Yeah, no, as you were saying, yeah, as they learn what it really is. And I, I think... That's so true, and that's why we advocate for having these conversations earlier, because then it builds a frame for what is going on. And what I wanted to add to that is, you know, I work with a lot of teen girl clients, and part of the process, maybe we can talk a bit about the grooming process, but part of the grooming process is normalizing behaviors that are are actually abusive. And because a lot of these girls that are targeted, or even boys that are targeted, don't have a clear understanding of the grooming process, then they don't recognize it's happening. And they feel that it must be normal, even though it doesn't feel comfortable. This adult that I trust is telling me this is normal. Right. This uh, teenage girl who was abused by her uncle, he began by first telling her she was very beautiful when she was 12. Yeah. And then a whole process of really saying, well, this is what uncles do with nieces. You know, again, normalizing the behavior, and she uh, kind of adhered to he's the authority figure and went with it. And uh, in that way, she was led down a path. That's much more a grooming process than giving gifts and presents. That's what people hear about, I think. Right. But the bigger process is changing your ideas 
about sexuality. Yeah, and what's normal. I mean, I think along those lines is with social media and, and texting in particular. I know you've seen a lot of cases where the teachers start you know, saying to students, like, you can text me about homework things, and then they start just texting one student, and it shifts into a different relationship. And because teens are so used to texting, they just assume this must be how it is. Yeah, the last eight years since we've had our amazing iPhones, uh, most of our, uh, many of our children have them after middle school, and they are a, a conduit really for sexual information to come across. So there's sexting. And I think for uh, parents to be aware that they might want to check in with their child around the phone use during the teen years, because uh, often parents won't check a phone for a year or two. And there's a lot of sexual disclosure and um, hidden uh, sexual abuse going on in that context. Well, I think two people find it very hard. People who are not thinking about abuse find it very hard to imagine that this could happen to a middle schooler, but it often does. And I mean, as you said, we should probably have a whole podcast about the patterns there, but that is one of the patterns is that targeting, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth grade girls and that the grooming process starts very early. Right. And the iPhones offer a connection in many ways, Um, you know, and they bear witness to the fact that the abuser is saying, oh, this is normal, come along with this, do this, all of that. So they're led into, you know, a direction or led in a direction of thinking that this is all normal behavior. Well, I think teens also get a sense that in some ways it isn't normal because often the abuser in some way will say, you know, about they have to keep this a secret, that, you know, terrible things will happen to them if the teen exposes the relationship, which is how it's framed, as this is just a normal relationship, but we need to keep it a secret. And so I think there's a lot of mixed messages there, and it's very confusing and hard to sort out on your own. Right, and this is all part of the silencing. Yeah. That, you know, this is normal, you shouldn't talk about it, but if you do, bad things will happen to me and to you. Right. And you're the one who will be blamed. Exactly. You, the child. Mm -hmm. So I think that that puts a child in a very difficult position, whether they're a teen or a child. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Well, Jennifer, there's a lot more to talk about with this. And uh, this is a day I'm not feeling so well, so I'm glad I've made it through so far, even with the tough topic. <laughs> I know, both of us. But I think, you know, it's an, it's important, and I'm glad we were able to have this discussion. Thank you. Come on. Let's talk about sex.